Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Fel. And I'm Honey. And today we're going to be diving into dreams. But before we get into that, we're going to do our what happened on this day. It is currently February 5th. And in honor of Black History Month, we wanted to celebrate one of the first patents filed by a Black American. So in 1884, Black American inventor Willis Johnson of Cincinnati, Ohio, yay Ohio, was uh, issued a U.S. patent for an egg beater. It was designed so that eggs, batter, and similar ingredients used by bakers or confectioners could be mixed efficiently. This patent was highlighted in a book called The Inventive Spirit of African Americans, Patented Ingenuity by Patricia Carter Slubley our listeners might be interested in reading. Fantastic innovation. As somebody who loves to bake, it is annoying having to beat together ingredients by hand, which is like a spatula. So awesome. Just to preface this episode, I was talking to Fel about this earlier. Keep in mind that dreams are such an understudied area and we don't really know anything. We're going to put together some history and also some science behind what we do know. Like, just keep in mind, this is a very underdeveloped field, and we're going off of a lot of complicated information that can be difficult to digest. So, yeah, that's out there for you. Let's just talk about why dreams. Why did we pick to talk about this topic? What is their relevance? The real reason I picked this for a topic was that Ruby suggested it. So thank you, Ruby. But also, I think there's something that is relevant across a really wide range of occult traditions. Like, they come up in loads and loads of different formats, right? So you've got like divination, deity communication, necromancy, all these things like they, they often involve dream work. And also I think that kind of points to how universal the experience of dreaming is. So even people who are not necessarily involved in the occult, they still might have a dream and find it somehow significant, maybe even spiritually significant. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of the historical relevance of dream work. So maybe let's talk about some historical examples of that. Fel, you're the historian, so... I'm going to pass it off to you. I'm the historian. So dreams are everywhere in history. And I would say probably, I mean, Henny kind of mentioned this, like one of the most important spiritual encounters in a lot of spiritualities and religions where they're used for divination. And they're also seen as like portents. Sometimes they were even used to do rituals, at least according to some scholarship. It was big in ancient Greece. So philosophers such as Socrates argued that sleep was an ideal state for receiving divine communication, as well would not be distracted by the trappings of the physical senses. This is definitely more philosophizing of, you know, the, a practice that was already common in ancient Greece, which was using dreams for divination. Herodotus made a distinction between prophetic and non-prophetic dreams. Not all dreams had meaning. This, I think, was expanded later on um, in the more Hellenistic age where Cicero on divination talked about certain dreams like there were certain categories for dreams certain dreams were kind of just meanderings of the mind like kind of how a lot of people view dreams today of your brain just sort of processing things and other ones were divine dreams so not all dreams were divine healing dreams which would come from Asclepius I don't know if we've talked about incubation on this in in this podcast before I've talked to about it quite a lot on my YouTube, so I sometimes forget what we've talked about where. I think we talked about the experience of Hippocrates and somebody would go to their kind of like spa thing and then they would go to sleep. Yes. 
Yeah, and then potentially have a dream about healing them. Often they would experience healing, but you're not quite sure whether that's part of them just being taken care of in a nice spa-like environment. The Bible also contains numerous references for divine communication through sleep. Abraham's dream, where he made a covenant with God. Christian mystics made use of dreams combined with bibliomancy. I'm not a Christian mystic, but I, I just thought this was really cool. Because I think that this is something that like appears very magical, right? But it's like also explicitly Christian. And so you, at this time, you would have seen a lot of stuff spelled as kind of heretical, but this wasn't because dreams were kind of viewed as from God. So the idea here is that you would have a dream and you would wake up immediately from the dream and you would grab a book and the book would usually be the Bible. And then you would look for the uh, first letter on the left-hand side of the page. And then using this letter, you would kind of look at the key in the prayer book that would kind of give you a clue as to how to interpret the dream. So if you saw the letter D, that would mean that you might not expect to have things one's own way in relation to the dreams topic. It's a, it's a little bit convoluted, but it is written in Old English. <laughs> but I just thought, I thought it was really interesting because, yeah, it's something that looks so magical and kind of almost has resemblance to grimoires, but is actually very, 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 very Christian. That sounds awesome. I want to try that now. <laughs> that sounds really cool. I'll just leave some weird book next to my head. I don't know. I don't know what weird book I would even read. Just use the book that you read when you go to sleep. Is that just me? Am I the only one who does that? No, I do that. But the book that I was reading yesterday is just called The Hellenistic Age. I don't think I'll find it. I'll like look at A and I'll be like, Alexander. <laughs> That'll teach me. <laughs> I thought it'd be interesting as well to dive into a bit further afield because I feel like we focus a lot on like Greek and Roman and like, European traditions. So I looked a little bit into Vedic ideas. And the Upanishads had this idea that dreams were where your soul would kind of leave your body. So it's, they were almost as another realm. And I think that this is maybe where we get some of our bastardized ideas about like sleeping, astral planes, you know, tra tra uh, trance work um, from this kind of idea and enshrined in kind of Hindu and Vedic philosophy. Another one would be necromancy and dreams. One of the ideas on how necromancy specifically ancient greek necromancy worked was that the ritual the necromantic ritual was done either in a light trance or in a lucid dreaming state and that the spirits would appear to you i believe it was pythagoras who said or was said to have said that dreams are a death-like state and that's why you're able to communicate with the gods because it's it's in this place where you're kind of dead but not dead because the dead were considered to be very uh, divinatory and prophetic. Another one that that, that kind of relates to of scholars kind of not quite sure, but this could be a theory or what dreams are a theory would be the idea of the witch's sabbat. Some people have said that it is not necessarily them taking all these drugs. Some of them are like, oh, it's like a, a dream state. Again, no consensus here from anybody. I mean, I don't think we would know. But there, there was a lot of, during the witch trials as well, there was... A lot of uh, dream divination that went on although they probably wouldn't have called it divination in which they foresaw witches doing certain things and then plant allies i know bay laurels were used as a plant ally for ancient greece there's one in the pgm i think so this is the hellenistic age really the pgm where you make some sort of charm out of seven bay laurels and uh, seven bay leaves and that's supposed to help you with dreams i guess beans would also be a plant ally <laughs> well pythagoras believed that beans impeded your dreams because they make you gassy and i guess that interrupts your dreams or makes them not pure or whatever 
So he banned beans. That was one of the reasons that they think he banned beans. But other people thought that beans would, that a bean held the human soul, which is kind of alarming if you eat a lot of beans. <laughs> That's a lot of souls. So you can call yourself soul eater. By eating the bean, you were essentially inviting that spirit inside of you in vocation and in a sort of way and able to prophesize by eating a bean. <laughs> so those are two historical plant allies from Greece that I can think of. I was just going to mention that I actually tried eating like a large quantity of beans every day for a week to just to see like does it affect my dreams because one of the one of the things that has been uh, proposed by modern scholarship is that maybe the reason that beans are thought of as bringing disruptive dreams is that they contain a lot of L-dopa which is a precursor to dopamine which is a neurotransmitter involved in dreaming we'll talk about that later and so I was thinking, okay, well, maybe if I, you know, eat a lot of beans, a lot of L-dopa, maybe, maybe something will happen. Nothing happened. Fine for the first five days. Extreme gastrointestinal distress by day seven. Probably won't try it again. <laughs> so I think Pythagoras is right on that one. I also wanted to mention mugwort. That's like the classic one associated with dreams, right? I thought it was kind of interesting. Although the evidence isn't super strong on its influence on uh, sleeping and dreams, you know, it's not really something that's been formally investigated. It is also associated with divination in many ways. Like it's 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 sometimes used in place of yarrow for I Ching, for example. Yeah, I've never had any luck with mugwort in dreams, which is kind of funny. Mugwort makes me very very sleepy. It does. It'll knock me out immediately, but it doesn't give me any funny dreams. So kind of. Yeah, sad. I also mugwort doesn't do anything. I mean, it like makes me tired, but that's really about it. But I'm also perpetually tired, so like. Does it actually do anything? I don't know. What do you both think about the creation of kind of this dream trance-like state with entheogens or psychedelics? Do you think it's the same or possibly different from the dream state that you might encounter in sleep just normally? So I know that there's a, a treatment usually used for PTSD, but I think it's now being used to treat other forms of mental illness called EMDR. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So basically, this was discovered by a, a psychologist because she was sitting on a train and looking out the window. And when you're looking at the window, your eyes are kind of like moving, but they're like moving very fast while also focusing. It was later like developed through various studies. And now it's like a fully approved treatment, at least here in the US. And the idea is like you sit an EMDR person administrator will sit across from you and like move their finger back and forth and you're supposed to kind of stare in between their finger in some way or like your so your eyes like will naturally follow their finger it's a very weird experience my sister has done it and I've known other people who have done it as well and oftentimes what you do you don't even have to speak but it's ideally done where you talk through a specifically like a traumatic memory and it will usually bring up a lot of intense emotions as traumatic memories do. But because you're simulating, you're, the idea is that you're simulating REM, REM sleep, rapid eye movement. And they found it, it like severely reduces stress. It sounds kind of a, a lot like hypnosis, honestly, in terms of the, the eye movement, like following. I don't know if that's kind of the same. Yeah, it's funny because... It. I completely agree when Fel was actually like doing the movement. I, I thought that they maybe had something on a screen for you to follow your eyes. I didn't realize that they actually did it with their finger. But in this book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, he talks a lot about EMDR. And the studies are, are, are quite surprising for how it was able after just like 
12 sessions, how PTSD patients rated their feelings of distress with certain traumatic memories. And they're, again, they're not even entirely sure how it works. There's just something to do with inducing REM while you're waking. We'll probably get into this a bit more later, but I know that REM sleep, as well as being associated with dreams, is also associated heavily with memory formation. So with what you were saying about recounting a traumatic experience and then kind of going over this REM state, maybe it's it's kind of reprogramming your experience and somehow writing it into your memory. I mean, I'm, that is a very unscientific explanation, but I can kind of see where there might be an association there. Right, because the idea of what happens with PTSD is that your memories are not fully integrated, right? Because like we can live through traumatic things and like they will upset us even when we still think about it, but it, not to that degree where it disrupts your whole mind body. So the idea is that it's it's helping your body and your mind process them in a way that it's able to keep functioning. So it's definitely, I think it's definitely possible to induce dream states while you are awake. I would say, uh, sorry, because you mentioned uh, comparing entheogens and dream sleep. I would say that having experienced both of those things, they're not the same. Like they don't feel the same, but their experience is just quite dramatically different in terms of like having the physical awareness that you still have in, with using a delirium. That being said, when I was reading uh, studies about this, they were investigating what other states of consciousness were most similar to dreaming. So, you know, can we study dreaming through other states of consciousness, because it's really hard to study dreaming when people are asleep. They actually decided that hallucinogens were probably not quite accurate because people, the, the state is just not quite the same. They're uh, more cognitively aware, but the effect is more similar to a deliriant, which is usually, you know, in the category of things like nightshades, you know, mandrake, etc. And that's what they would have used in theory, for, you know, spirit flight and things. So there is a potential connection there. Yeah, it's interesting. In the research that I did as well, I found that there's like a difference between the chemical simulation of using an entheogen or a psychedelic or a delirium versus also just like the delirium that you get from like a lack of sleep. Like the, both the intensity and the severity of kind of the outcomes of that are different, which is suggesting that the trans states are also different. I have never done any of like the antigens or anything, so I can't speak to that. But I do know, even actually, it's funny because being delirious from lack of sleep and doing rituals, which happens to me more frequently than I would care to admit, is different than like having a dream when you're asleep, uh, the way in which you you feel and even go about it. So yeah, it's very interesting how different things you do can maybe induce different types of these trance states, which could be useful for various things. Oh, yeah. We want to touch on Freud. So just uh. for everybody um, who's wondering, there's a note in here um, about Freud and, you know, discussing his take on the topic. Do I want to touch on Freud? Probably never, but I guess I, I will. Freud had this idea that, quote, dreams are the symbolic expression of frustrated desires that have been relegated to the unconscious mind. Freud is pretty notoriously known, I would say, for his dream interpretation. And a lot of psychoanalysts, like our psychoanalysis is, is fundamentally based on dream interpretation, which then during analytic psychology, the development was Carl Jung. He basically took this idea further and expanded on it with archetypes and the collective unconscious. It's kind of funny. I was actually thinking about this earlier that the idea of dreams being used to treat psychological issues is similar to Asclepius temples in which they would like they almost like yeah it's almost like incubation where you like go into this dream state and then you tell your therapist and then he diagnoses you it just seemed similar 
At least that was that was a shower thought I had. Well, shower thought while I was cooking. This actually brings up a question that we had at the end. One of the things that we were going to touch on, um, if we had time, which was that w- whether or not dreams represent like an other world or if they represent the collective unconscious. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't really believe in the collective unconscious. So <laughs> I'm maybe not the best person to ask for that. I don't know if dreams represent an other world. I think they represent some sort of internal world, maybe a place, a receptive world. I don't think I'd because I don't I also don't believe in astral projection. So I don't really believe necessarily in like going to an actual other world. But I do think that it could be a, a different receptive state. Like you're you're not leaving your own plane of existence, but rather you're opening up your plane of existence to other things. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And we'll actually get into some of the science behind that a little bit later. But I also don't believe in the collective unconscious. I also don't really believe in astral projection. But it's interesting because I don't really think they represent a collective unconscious. I mean, we all know kind of the issues with this terminology and how it's been taken out of context. But I think it can maybe seem that way because we all have similar human experiences that imprint themselves on our memory. And that then creates this these relatable links to anybody who is human, which makes it seem like there's more of this kind of collective unconscious or these archetypes that are seen kind of throughout everybody's life. But I really just think it's the nature of humanity that links us all together and creates these kind of similarities. Annie, what do you think? Surprisingly, I have slightly changed my mind on this since I think we last discussed it. Because I think previously I was like definitely very much in agreement with you. Recently, and it's going to be hard for me to put this into words, but I had an experience when I was meditating that was really, really, really intense. I don't know what exactly it was um, that caused me to go into such an intense state of meditation, but I was almost like dreaming while I was awake, actually. To me, it definitely felt as if I was exploring some alternative reality that was like laid on top of our own. It was very, very surreal. It was almost like, and this is, again, it, it when I vocalize it, it sounds cringy as all hell, but it, it was like I was visiting the place where art is, art is born. Like it, very, very, very intense. So actually the idea of kind of the unconscious mind and its relationship to one's reality, I guess, I'm more open to. I don't know that I, I think that that's shared with other people, though. Yeah, I think I need to process this experience a little bit more. <laughs> I can believe that, like, you can, I don't know, I'm going to get into, like, weird uh, <laughs> ideas. Like, I think you can, there are moments when, I mean, I've talked about this before, how I, how I see deities and stuff running parallel to me, and sometimes they they touch upon our our world like a ripple i think the same thing happens with other other worlds i guess so it's not necessarily like i don't think that they can you know interact with us but i don't know i feel like we're just so embodied i mean that's why like they the dreams are considered death-like experience in the ancient greek world because the only way to them to be free uh to have your spirit wander into other places is to die so i think perhaps there is something to it, but I I don't think it's as simple as, as like, you know, closing your eyes and journeying away. I think sometimes, like, with your experience, perhaps, like, there was something that, like, really clicked that disembodied you. And so I think the disembodiment is 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 what's important. I don't know if that makes sense. 
I think it definitely does. Yeah. 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 So I think it makes sense. Okay. So that then brings us to kind of the next point where we're going to go into the science behind what a dream is and then how we know slash really think that dreams work. I actually got progressively more unhinged when I was researching this. Um, but first, okay. Dreams happen when you're sleeping, usually. So let's first think about like what sleep is and, you know, what's happening to our brains and our bodies when we sleep. So sleep is a process which almost all animals undergo. It represents a change to your consciousness and to your physical activity. So there's no single answer as to why we sleep, but it's thought that maybe its role is in conserving energy, both in your brain and your body. And this then permits restorative processes in your brain and your body to occur outside of the strict metabolic demands of conscious life. So it's saving energy, but it's also protecting you from metabolic products, which might contribute to harm in your body. So for example, your brain replenishes its ATP stores. Rogue ATP signaling can actually cause an immune response to purinergic signaling. So you can imagine that this building up over time could, for example, lead to damage. So it's good to have a kind of break period. In, in a very simplified way. And we also know th- why sleep is important because organisms that who don't sleep are physically affected. So they have health issues, including immune dysfunction, as I mentioned, and psychological distress. And in extreme cases, people actually die from lack of sleep. So now we know what sleep is. How does this actually function in terms of dreams? So these metabolic changes where our brain is undergoing re- repair processes, they might contribute to brain plasticity. So these are when new neural pathways form as a result of learning and also memory encoding, which we talked about earlier. So when we're undergoing these nightly processes or daily processes, if you're me, your changes in brain physiology can be visualized by looking at your brain waves. So a brain wave is basically, it's an electrical voltage that you can measure through something like uh, electroencolography. Electroencolography. Good luck pronouncing that, yeah. I even I practiced, you know, and I, I've, I've really failed. Yes, but you can you can you can look at these electrical voltages. They are basically a proxy for looking at neural signaling in the brain. So you can look at our, our brain waves through electrical frequencies. And when we look at these frequencies, we can see that sleep occurs in four stages of consciousness. Initially, in stage one of sleep, you're starting to drift from wake, wakefulness. Your brain waves begin to slow down. They've got a reduced frequency. Stage two is when you have sort of light sleep. Uh, your brain waves slow even further, your body temperature starts to drop, your sensory awareness decreases as well, like you're harder to wake. Most of your sleep is actually in stage two. When you start to enter stage three, you're in deep sleep. So um, your muscle movement declines, you're very still, you start to experience the slowest type of brain waves, which are delta waves. And then finally, stage four is the one we've been talking about, which is REM or rapid eye movement. So this is the sort of deepest phase, most delta waves, you have minimal body movement and sensory capacity. And this is when we have most of our dreams. Can They can occur in the other phases, but they're most, mostly in here. And they're also, again, as we mentioned, important for memory formation. So hopefully that gives you an overview of like what exactly is happening to our bodies. And maybe, a, maybe it gives us a clue as to um, how dreams might happen. Yeah, something I want to touch on that you mentioned is the importance of like nutrition and living like a healthy lifestyle, both in terms of sleep and nutrition and how that affects our brains and then our physiology. That's an important point that I don't think a lot of, and that's also the reason why I think a lot of occult, at least within the ceremonial practices, like they call for fasting or being sleepless, which I don't recommend, but like it happens when it comes to rituals because it actually enhances your ability to, I think, go into a trance state because you're lacking those nutrients that allow for like this full functionality of your brain to be at its best. And so it's interesting that that is tied into ritual 
sometimes we don't necessarily know like fully understand why that happens the way it does but i think the general consensus is just like you're essentially starving your brain for what it needs and so it's going to kind of take these other pathways to then be as functional as possible to like help you survive yeah that's a really interesting point it's not necessarily related to dreams specifically but it does induce a very particular trance state what i think is the most interesting thing about dream neurophysiology is the similarities that have been found between the dreaming and also the waking states. So we know about the similarities between the inner and outer worlds, and there are perceptual modalities that dominate wakefulness that are also represented. Um, for instance, like dreams are highly visual. They're usually really rich in color, have shapes and movements, and they incorporate categories that we're familiar with, like peoples and faces, places that you've been to, or maybe that you're familiar with because you've seen them or read about them in some way, objects and animals. And they even contain sounds and some other sensory perceptions. Although interestingly, speech is not always understandable. It makes me think of like Charlie Brown and the teacher who's just like, wah, 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 that whole thing. But that similarity between the inner and the outer worlds, I think is something that I find really, really interesting. And it's so comparable to the wakeful state and also the dream state. So a question for you both, actually, and Hannah, you touched on this earlier in recounting your experience, but do your dreams often seem very realistic? Do you sometimes have a hard time differentiating between when you're dreaming and like when you're actually awake? All the time. But I'm I'm not sure actually if that is like partly dissociation. It's a bit, yeah, all the time. And um, also with sleep paralysis, which is a, it's basically a disorder of sleep often so you'll you'll kind of get stuck in one of the phases of sleep and your amygdala will be awake which is the, the part of your brain which basically controls fear but the rest of your body will be completely still and incapable of waking but those tend to be very very vivid lifelike dreams for me where i'll dream about getting up and waking up it's so it's yeah it's it's horrible actually i'm i, I find that um even if something is quite fantastical it, it feels very very vivid it depends. I go through phases of, it hasn't happened in a while. Like by phases, I mean, it happens like once every other year. I go through phases of lucid dreaming, which uh, is actually the worst. So whenever people are like, I want tips on how to lucid dream, I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. It sucks. There was some guy I knew in college who like was chronically lucid dreaming. Like there's like a couple of stages of lucid dreaming. One of them is you just know you're dreaming. One of them is you have partial control. And the other one is you have entire control over dream. And he would constantly have entire control over his dream. And he would be like, oh, he'd like wake up in the dream and be like, oh, I'm going to be so tired tomorrow. Well, I guess I'll just fly. And then he'd just like fly around. <laughs> the thing with like lucid dreaming is like you're not, you're not getting a full night's sleep essentially. Like you're, you'll, probably wake up less uh more tired because your brain is like not fully shut down i'm not in a current phase of lucid dreaming but i occasionally go through phases of lucid dreaming i do have dreams sometimes that are like i had a dream last night <laughs> where i have a lot of things that i'm doing tomorrow for example and i had a dream that i like slept in too late and missed everything that i was supposed to do and it was like really realistic i i sometimes have dreams that are super super on the nose and I wake up and I'm like did that actually happen or did I dream that but my dreams tend to be very vivid like very vivid very memorable um yeah what's interesting is my dad actually doesn't dream in color he dreams in black and white pretty much exclusively so, oh quick question do you dream in first person or third person now that's a good question it depends I sometimes jump around sometimes I'm first person but I'm like a camera I guess 
or not a camera. Sometimes I'm like a camera and I'm like observing people. Like I'm not even like a person in the story. And sometimes I'm first person. Really yeah, don't. I'm also the same way. My dreams are, it, it really just depends. Like sometimes I am the subject of the dream, in which case it is first person perspective. But I've had other dreams where it's, I'm basically the narrator of like what's happening. And so I'm like watching it happen <laughs> from afar. There are really only kind of two dreams that I can like still recall from my lifetime, like very, very vividly. And they were like very realistic dreams where I woke up and I was just like, am I like in my bed where I am supposed to be right now? <laughs> Did this actually happen? Did I like leave my house for any reason? No. And so, yeah, like those two dreams specifically have been incredibly realistic. I and mean, I'm still sometimes left wondering if they were actually dreams or if it was reality, but they weren't ever things that I would actually do. So I'm pretty sure they were dreams. For me, they're very realistic. I have only had, I think, a couple of like very fantastical dreams where I was like, this is just me up in the clouds, not, I don't know, because I read a book right before I went to bed that, you know, dealt with dragons and crazy stuff. But the thing is, even if there are like dragons and stuff, the, the feeling that you have, I guess mm -hmm. it's because of the emotion centers that are being activated in your brain or something along those lines. The feeling is that you are in some like weird fake reality where I don't know, like CEOs exist. And <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, the dragons are real. Like the dragons are the, are the real part and the, the yeah. cryptocurrency is the, is the dream. That's true. That is true though. Like you do think yeah. at the moment that what you're experiencing is real. For example, one of the dreams that has stuck with me literally through years, there was like an obstacle course in the air. And it was like, had, had did any of you watch Wipeout? It was a show on, on the US TV. And basically it was like an obstacle course that people had to get through. And I distinctly remember this dream being like one of those obstacle courses in the air. It was so vivid. And like, I was so invested in that dream because my mom, I recall her specifically like telling me later, she was like, you were talking in your sleep about whatever was going on in your dream. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. That's so wild. It's so interesting because even if it is fantastical within the dream itself, you're so convinced that it's totally real. So I play a lot of video games. And a lot of times my dreams will start to become like video games. Like I'll just be like clicking on something in my dream or like I'll have like, cause like video games, it's like things where, you know, you hover over something and something will appear. And it's like that similar sensation. Or when I play a lot of Sims, oh my gosh, I sometimes have dreams about like being a Sim. People have like little plum bobs above their heads. <laughs> so, uh, so sometimes if I like, if I watch certain movies, or play video games, especially my like view, my point of view will change because of that. I've always, I always know I play too much when that starts happening. <laughs> uh, you just reminded me when, when I used to like pass out when I was revising a lot. Sometimes what would happen is I'd be stuck on a problem and then I would solve it in the dream through some kind of like fantastical yes. experience. Yeah, I've like, done that before. Yeah, like <laughs> like I'd see like a Hess cycle or something like appear on my face. I'd wake up like, oh my god. <laughs> Um, because yeah I think it's something to do with that memory consolidation process that we mentioned it's just the your unconscious mind is still processing it even when you have stopped thinking about it yeah there was this um oh gosh I I wish I knew the actual scientist who did this we all google it right now but there's like a an urban legend that he used to have a leave a penny on his head and when he was stuck on something he would like sit and like start to nod off like thinking about the problem and then he had the penny on his head because as soon and he had a bucket on the floor. And as soon as he like nodded off, the penny would I hit know the who bucket. Talking about. I don't know what their name is. Oh shoot! Yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah, I read I this somewhere like not even that long ago. 
I don't know if it was a penny, but it was something like um. We should all just. How about this? We'll all just take a collective nap, put something on our head, and <laughs> then we'll remember who it was when <laughs> it so We'll do an experiment and get back to you on, on this. <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, I'm thinking it was Thomas Edison, but I don't think that's actually accurate. But yeah, there was somebody who they essentially prevented themselves from falling asleep and they used that. In the book, he used that as an example of like focusing on a sigil and manifesting your will. Um, it was this way of like in that liminal space between sleeping and being awake, you're subconscious. Oh, it was Thomas Edison. When Thomas Edison hit a wall with his inventions, he would nap in an armchair while holding a steel ball. As he started to fall asleep and his muscles relaxed, the ball would strike the floor, waking him with insights into his problems. Or he would just go outside and find someone to steal it from. <laughs> okay, there you go. So it was Thomas Edison. Um, but yeah, and that's that's allegedly very effective. We should do it. We should all do an experiment and we can report back. Yeah. <laughs> report, report in the Discord. This will be less traumatic than the beans. Yeah. <laughs> we should all try it. We should do a group experiment and Let's each of us it. try it. Okay. okay, okay. We'll report back in the Discord. Anyways, <laughs> to keep going. So these phenomenological similarities between the like real world that we experience on a day-to-day and then the inner dream world are reflected in neurophysiological similarities between both the awake and the dream states. Electroencephalograms, whatever. They're called EEGs for short because no one can actually pronounce it. Anyway, these EEGs superficially look very similar in the active waking state and in REM sleep. So in addition to that, positron emission tomography, or PET, studies have also shown that brain metabolism is comparable between wakefulness and REM sleep, which I thought was very interesting. And there are other other studies that have even revealed a strong activation of high-order occipitotemporal visual cortex in REM sleep. That specific part of your brain is responsible for like really vivid imagery. So it makes sense that the activation would be a part of dreams where we have this kind of vivid recollection of this inner world that seems to be pulled from what we experience day to day. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think, I mean, I don't know, do you think there is a neurophysiological connection? It's hard to say really because, and this is something that I was thinking about when I was reading all these papers, we know so little about how the brain works (laughs) that when we say we see these parts activated, especially if it's so similar to like when somebody is awake, I feel like there's crosstalk between areas of the brain that are missing in some of these studies that could actually increase kind of the explanation of why they're different despite the fact that the activities are similar. The other thing we're going to talk about are maybe the some of the hypotheses behind how dreams work and what causes them to occur. So one of the hypotheses is that there is a random firing of neurons in the cerebral cortex. Now this idea was actually a transformational within the field of neurophysiology in relation to dreams because it stemmed from this understanding that the parieto occipital quote-unquote hot zone was activated in more than just REM sleep. So when this hot zone showed activation, and activation is a complicated term, so please look at the papers for the explanation for this, but when the activation, when it showed activation, subjects reported waking that they had dream experiences in both REM and NREM sleep. Of course, again, we kind of have to take into consideration here that the EEGs only catch a picture of activity, um, and there could also be crosstalk amongst other regions of the brain. But I think it's interesting, this random firing thing, because it seems to be independent upon the phase of sleep that one is in. 
which could maybe explain why there are dreams and multiple of these like sleep states that we talked about earlier. This neuronal firing though, I feel like there's more to it. Like I don't just think your neurons firing randomly is enough to generate dreams, especially that are so vivid. I feel like there has to be some kind of connection maybe to where your memory stuff is located to make them so vividly real. I was just going to say that when I was reading about this, I was looking into different perspectives from different neuropsychologists, neuroscientists, and there seem to be very, very, very divided opinions on how dreams actually form, I guess because of a sort of paucity of evidence. Some people are very much in the camp that, yeah, it's definitely just random firing. It's just our brain making sense of kind of random signals, similar to this idea that maybe a hallucination takes a kind of a seed of sensory information and then it tries to make sense of it in a, a congruent way. And because you have less kind of activity in general, your brain is using less energy, you don't question the, the kind of odd things that happen in the dreams at the time. Uh, so that, that's a kind of very strict neuropsychi- neuropsychiatric explanation for that, I guess. But then there are other people who think that there's more to it and that it's more specific. But maybe you can go into that a little bit more. Yeah. So some of the others, there's a physical, another hypothesis is that there's a physical side effect from this memory formation, as we know about activation in the hippocampus during sleep, as well as the relevance of REM sleep to memory formation. Actually, Hanny, I think you are more informed about this, about this than I am. Can you talk maybe more about the connection there between REM sleep and memory formation? It kind of comes from looking at activation of the hippocampus, which is a region of the brain which is associated with memory formation um, during sleep. And it's also these studies, which we'll talk about in a bit, which are basically recall studies in, in serial awakening tests. So what they do, it sounds horrible, absolutely horrible. They put people to sleep in, in a controlled environment and they're wearing EEGs. And when they enter each phase of sleep, they will wake them up and they will ask them to recall their dreams. So they will um, also investigate their memory recall of a task that was performed the previous day and see both if their memory recall of the dream is affected according to the phase of sleep they're in, but also if the phase of sleep they've gone into is has influenced their ability to remember their previous day's task. And so it's this idea that you can consolidate those memories a bit better if you enter the REM sleep phase. I mean, it's, it's hugely flawed because obviously these environments are not really conducive to good sleep for most people. But I think that's the kind of the, the idea. You serially look at people through different, the different phases. And the last hypothesis is a dopaminergic, dopa, how do you say this, Andy? Oh, dopaminergic. Dopaminergic, there you go, pathway of activation, and then how a damage to this area subsequently affects one's ability to dream. This is also something that I'm not familiar with, so do you want to talk more about this? Yeah, dopaminergic pathways. So we talked a little bit about this before. Dopamine is a, uh, it's a neurotransmitter, and one of the things that your brain does when it's sleeping, because we talked about this whole thing with, with um, energy and metabolism and how that, that shifts, is certain neurotransmitters are replenished. And so you see certain things like do- dopamine being as one of those, in particular dopaminergic pathways, which are often associated with actually things like movement. And that's why in Parkinson's disease, you get the uh, degradation of these, these pathways. Yeah, basically the, these pathways are seen to be activated during sleep. And if these pathways are damaged, then people actually lose their ability to dream. And we also know that they have these, pa- these pathways in the brain have an influence on things like hallucinatory disorders. So it, it could be relevant to um, ability to kind of draw up imagery um, and men- mento-, mento visual imagery. And this, again, it's a bit of a tenuous link, but... L-DOPA is, as we mentioned, it's a precursor to dopamine. So thinking if these pathways are particularly lit up when we sleep 
and uh, relevant to the process of dreaming, then maybe foods that, c that contain lots of L-dopa, like beans, could influence, uh, enhance this uh, signaling and that could get, get in the way of our, us dreaming normally. Let's talk about what scientific methodologies maybe we can use to investigate dreams and what their limitations are. Um, we'll talk about some of the limitations of maybe current technologies that are used and then also maybe how we could do it better in the future. Um, do keep in mind, none of us are neurologists nor neurophysiologists, so this is just coming from our background as scientists. <laughs> Hanny and I work with very small organisms, so the brain is a bit outside of our scale. As we've kind of mentioned in the above information, normal sleep studies typically entail the use of approaches like EEGs, which again are electrodes on your head looking at the brain's electric activity, or similar approaches like neuroimaging, for example, to look at like your brain's activity in a different manner. Or you can use approaches like examining eye or muscle movement, which is also an indicator of specific brain region functionality. And then typically in these studies, you have people going to sleep, waking up, and then being asked to report their dream. Now, this is, I think, probably the biggest flaw to most of these studies is the subject's recollection of the dream, which is not necessarily going to be great, high, or accurate. I mean, how many times, especially within the spiritual community, do we tell people, like, as soon as you wake up, you should have, like, a notebook by your bed with a pen so you can record your dreams? I mean, they hear all the time. And it's because memory of that is so fleeting. What's interesting, and I don't know if there's been research done, I didn't have a chance to look into it, is that some dreams stick with people better than other dreams. For example, like, I have those two dreams. I can remember them so clearly. But every other dream, I don't remember. <laughs> I, I don't write them down. I don't remember. And so I, I wonder if there's a reason for that. But what are maybe some other flaws within the way these studies are run that you can think of? So I, I have had a sleep study done. Very bad. Do not recommend. I hated every second of it. Because the, uh, the thing I think that is really hard with sleep studies is the amount of equipment that is needed to get accurate readings. However... The body does not like it when there are things that are stuck, like as they had one on between my eyebrows, on my temples, underneath my eyelids, two things sticking in my nose, a couple things on my jaw, all along my scalp. Uh, and like you can't like toss and turn. And I kept ripping things out in the middle of the night. So I'd wake up to a technician, putting them back in. So that's, I think, the, the biggest difficulty with sleep studies in, in terms of their accuracy is just getting the people to sleep because they'll always be like sleep normally and it's like uh i'm i'm basically strapped to a bed because i can't stand up uh and i know there's someone watching me you were like yeah probably <laughs> is like curled into a ball on my under like my covers on my bed not stretched out in log position right because i couldn't even like turn my face so that i think is the the biggest problem with sleep studies is like even if you didn't have the pros the, i forget yeah, the like the the even the little nose thing. Like I think the like I ripped off my wires and because my body was like, what the heck is this? <laughs> so I think that's the problem, the stress that the body is under when you put all of that equipment on. That it's just like it, it's not conducive to normal sleeping environment. Yeah, this gets even more ridiculous when you think about MRI. So when they actually look at the areas of the brain which are active, what they're usually looking at is uh, blood flow or oxygen uptake using an MRI. If you've guys have ever had an MRI before I haven't but my brother has They're they so are the loud. the loudest machines so loud I don't know how anybody could sleep through that it is like it would be worse than going to sleep on an airplane and you're also in a very enclosed space 
Um, like it, because obviously the they have to uh, send, send those waves through and that they have to generate the magnetic field so you're you're basically in like a sort of coffin like tube with a roaring noise all around you I, I can't imagine that anybody dreams normally in those I've had an MRI I can't imagine going to sleep when you're getting an MRI it is so noisy and so obnoxious and you hear beeps and there are lights flashing and I hated every second of it. There's no way that would be a relaxing enough environment to fall asleep in. No way. I think the final thing is that you just can't really quantify a dream. Like you can, you can, you know, assuming even if you are able to recall it when you wake up, how vivid is it? Like what, you're going to ask them to rate it on a scale of one to 10? What if some, somebody, somebody's vivid might be different to somebody else's vivid? There's not really a good way right now for us to quantify these. So actually studying dreams and um, how significant they are and how relevant they are is uh, really, really hard. There's not really a, an easy way to standardize it. I think perhaps one of the best ways we could do it is to find chemicals that are involved specifically within dream-based pathways. But even that, like, like I said, we don't have the research done to identify such chemicals or proteins or, or biologics. And so what I would recommend normally is you could just like attach a fluorophore or something to it and then have it like you could image it in the brain with hopefully a much, much like less invasive method. But of course, even the fluorescence would be hard, be, like in terms of doing live confocal because you'd have to get through the multiple layers of tissue and skin and whatever. There are ways to do it. It would be really difficult. But yeah, we don't know enough about the brain and the pathways and even how they're intermingled and interconnected to really be able to say like, yes, these things are associated with this particular pathway. Um, even on the pathways that we do know about, like every single day, I feel like a new paper comes out and it's like, oh, this protein that you thought did X thing actually does these other seven things. So it's just really complicated. I don't really know that there's a good way to measure that. And brain activity seems to be the best way. But like like everybody else has said, having things attached to you when you're sleeping is hardly a conducive environment to like getting a good night's rest. A lot of our most interesting pathway data is based on people with actual brain disorders. So I mentioned mm -hmm. the dopaminergic pathways. That was found out through people with disorders who then lose their ability to dream. But then obviously that's really interesting because that they can actually provide a sort of relative quantification and say like, I had this and now it's changed. So, you know, this is probably implicated. Yeah, we can, we can compare diseased brain to like healthy brain activity and be like, what's different, right? Yeah, but then it's like, when did their disease start? So Parkinson's disease, they might have had symptoms and they might have started experiencing something, but. Did they have like a pre-disease pathology? Like, are they comparable to healthy individuals? You can't really know that very easily. So it's, yeah, it's just a bit of a flawed system, although it's interesting to um, look at these case studies. Well, even within that, when it comes to like disease brains, you also have no guarantee that even the differences that you do see that they're related to the lack of dreaming, right? Like it's that correlation is not so linear. There's probably multiple reasons. And especially if we don't know when it started, like, Personally, like Parkinson's, maybe you're just beginning to see the side effects of it, of it happening now, but that deterioration could have been happening for, for years. And so maybe what you see now is like that progression has led to other things that could have caused a lack of dreaming. Like it's not, it's just not so um, perfectly aligned, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to get at there. Oh yeah. So does that, do any of us like do dream work based practices or do you not? I would say actually a, a good, like, I don't know, 70% of my religious practice and like way that I engage with the spirituals through dreams. Yeah. Dreams have always been a massive part of my life, dream and, and trance work. Like I said, I've gone through 
I go through phases where I, I lucid dream. So I'm able to really like, I'm able to tell what is a normal dream, what is a divine dream. I've definitely had divine dreams. And they're always wild. I find dreams are very, very fruitful for divination. In fact, they're kind of like the only form of divination I regularly do because they kind of just happen. Like if you've ever had a dream that feels prophetic, you just know. <laughs> You're like, this feels like, not even prophetic, but it feels like portentous of some kind, like of some import. You're like, oh, this is this feels important. I, I use dreams all the time. I keep dream journals. I talk about dreams and like some of my UPG comes from dreams they're like i use them all the time because i find like they're just this time when i'm anything can happen and i'm so vulnerable that like i can't you know fight the the experience because it's just happening to me i also found that chamomile is a surprisingly good uh, the way that it affects me it, it leaves me more open to vivid dreams which i find very odd i often have like weird dreams on melatonin so i don't know if there's something to do with that as well i do know there is a connection between strange dreams and melatonin though you just reminded me that um, there's a connection between bad dreams and cheese but i don't know if that's actually true or not i mean according to christmas carol right <laughs> you've not you've not heard that before Astra. It's, it's like if you eat cheese before you get to bed you'll have bad dreams no really and maybe that's just a british thing i don't know yeah it's kind of interesting I love it. that's great though yeah, well, I mean, it, it makes me think that maybe there's more of an impact on, of our diet um, than we think before sleep, like because it's, there are so many changes to metabolism when you're sleeping that, yeah, maybe there's something there's something to that. I've got to try the chamomile. I think there is something to that because, I mean, they tell you not to eat, like, what is, what is it, like three hours or something before you sleep. There's probably a reason behind that. Like, it does affect your metabolism. I mean, even like after when people eat lunch, right? We feel sluggish. Well, not everybody, but I feel sluggish after I eat lunch and I would love a midday nap. So I do think there is something between like our diets and when we eat even that can affect our sleep and then hence you think your dreams. What about you, Hanny? Do dreams play a big part in your practice? Yeah, actually, I would say that it was one sort of divine related dream that kind of really kicked off my practice in a more serious way. It was many, many, many years ago now, but I still have a very, very vivid memory of that dream. And it's something that I return to over and over. So yeah, it's, I think I agree with Fel that it's when you have a dream of such significance, it feels profoundly different to anything else. And you just know it is. I think when I was reading studies about this, it's described as salience. It's, it's just the the inherent feeling of, of spiritual importance. So yeah, that's that's the predominant thing that I have been interested in dreams for. The other thing is, I guess, trance and meditation. I'm not necessarily sure that these are quite the same as dreaming, but they do feature some of the same features, feature some of the same things. So, for example, the brain waves that you experience during meditation tend to be slower in many cases, depending on the type of meditation. So that's a similarity to dreams. And while I wouldn't say that the experiences I have are necessarily always the same as experiencing a dream when I'm sleeping, it's a, a kind of analogous world that I'm exploring so yeah that's that's the, the predominant use um, in my own practice it's along the same wavelength if you want to be corny about it I'm sorry I didn't make a joke in my practice honestly dreams weren't a big part of anything that I did until I started doing spirit work and then they became more prevalent like really within the last year or so since I, I began to kind of rely heavily on spirit work in my ceremonial practice they're much more frequent and they're much more vivid and it's definitely it's interesting because that feeling of yes this is an important dream is is very different than just a regular dream it's very obvious like even just as soon as it starts it'll appear normal and then 
just as I'm going through it. I'm like, I feel like this is something that I should really be paying attention attention to right now. I'm like being very involved within the dream itself. So yeah, they play a bigger part. It's not something that I necessarily in like intentionally try and dream. It just kind of happens. Usually after larger rituals, especially if I've asked for a response, it usually comes in, in dream form, which is a very odd thing to get used to. But yeah, that's my experience with it. Out of curiosity, when your dreams, when you do have kind of those more like prophetic spiritual dreams do they tend to happen to you in first or third person because to me it's almost always in third person interesting i don't mine are usually in first person that's usually pretty important aspect of them because when i'm interacting with the divine when it's me i'm like oh like there's sometimes a fear factor i'm like oh oh no gosh i'm so mortal i'm so small um so they are usually in first person yeah for me they have almost always been in first person the exception being when i was once in first person then then i i left my dream body to to enter another astral dream body very very wow, soon astral projected while you were listening. in my dream <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is i i kind of it, it's the same experience to me as like sleep paralysis where you're having those like loops. So yeah, that was that was trippy as all hell. Um. <laughs> That's so interesting. Mine are typically third person. I mean, not always, but for many of them, it's like, it's usually as if I'm watching the situation that I've asked for assistance, like assistance with. And then... I see the divine like interfere and cause like a change. And that's usually the answer, if you will. Um, it's very odd. Huh, <laughs> that's like, very interesting. It's it. like they're showing you. It's like they're showing you a, a playthrough. Yeah, it like, is. It's very together. weird. That's so interesting. It's very interesting. But anyways, yeah. So, okay. Well, we are at our time cutoff. So we will end the episode here. I think we already kind of gave our final thoughts. So we will just call it good we will do the experiment with the whole ball on our head and like trying to figure out a problem and report back to everybody in the discord so be on the lookout for that but in the meantime make sure to follow us on instagram also join our discord if you haven't we have some really great conversations recently have been going on in there and it's been fascinating to read different points of view and just have really great discussions we also when we have time have like a cult journal topics that we will discuss or science journals that will go through things that are relevant, new papers that have been produced. People are posting papers all the time. So even if we don't have a journal club, you've always got something to read. So do feel free to join. We'd love to have you. And until next time, bye, everybody. Bye.